Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail in for Mina Kim. The day after the insurrection last January, pundits and politicians predicted that this unprecedented breach of the Capitol would be the pivot point that brought American democracy back from the brink. But with a country consumed by a pandemic, chronic inequality, and polarized political parties, little seems to have changed in the last year. As the nation begins to reflect on the one-year anniversary of the insurrection, we'll talk to Representative Adam Schiff, journalist Zach Beecham, and historian Kelly Carter-Jackson about where the American experiment is headed. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail, in for Mina Kim. Tomorrow marks one year since the insurrection on the nation's capital. On Thursday, President Biden and Vice President Harris will address the nation. Congress will take a moment of silence and deliver member testimony. And today here at Forum, we'll consider where our nation is headed and hear from listeners about your thoughts on the state of our union. Joining me now to share some of his thoughts and updates on the House Committee's investigation into the events of January 6th is Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat representing California's 28th District in Los Angeles County. He's chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and member of the Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. His recent book is Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. Welcome back to Forum, Congressman. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So before we dive into all the committee updates, I'm curious how you're processing and reflecting personally on the anniversary tomorrow. I know you've reflected in your book on the experience of being in the House chamber while the Capitol was under attack, but I'm wondering if the anniversary is conjuring another layer of reflection for you. Well, it is. Uh, It was certainly a traumatic experience being there on the House floor during this uh, attempted uh, coup on our government. Uh, And, uh, you know, I've got mixed feelings about being back on the floor uh, tomorrow uh, Mm. and feel the the weight of that anniversary and the, you know, the strong memories it brings back of the the effort to get us out, the police officers uh, barricading the doors, the pounding on the doors, the breaking of glass. Um, It was a terrible day and made all the more terrible by the realization that this attack on our capital was coming from within, from our own people. And yeah. uh, sadly, in the in the months since, in the year since, uh, what gave rise to that attack, the, the propagation of this big lie about the election has only continued. And 
made further violence uh, uh, all the more uh, possible. So I, I wish I was looking back on this anniversary with a sense that we had turned a corner, but uh, but I feel we're still very much at risk. And uh, you're a part of the committee, as I mentioned, that's continuing to look into those risks, to look back at the events of that day. And the committee has been hard at work and you're planning public hearings for this year. Uh, can you tell us when those will start and what we can expect from them? Um, we expect, I think, to begin within a matter of weeks. Um, and we'd like to tell the story uh, as you know, logically and cohesively as we can um, and bring the American people into the fact-finding process. We've learned a great deal since we began this investigation. We've talked to over 300 witnesses and got tens of thousands of documents. Uh, and we've learned that there were multiple lines of effort to overturn the election um, that began well before the election to set the predicate, uh, but continued afterwards with efforts to uh, cajole and intimidate local elections officials, to corral state legislators to overturn the results, to try to make use of the Justice Department uh, to uh, weigh in inappropriately to delay the certification in certain states, uh, and finally culminating in that last-ditch effort to get Mike Pence to uh, ignore his constitutional duty and get Congress to overturn the result. And uh, so we want to show each of those lines of effort to the country, um, as well as uh, make recommendations about what we need to do to protect ourselves going forward. And I know you're seeking the cooperation now of Fox News host Sean Hannity regarding his text with the White House indicating his advanced knowledge of then President Trump's plans for January 6th. What new information are you hoping to get? Well, we have abundant uh, text messages uh, from Hannity to different people, uh, predominantly the White House Chief of Staff, um, expressing great concern about what was going to happen on January 6th. Uh, you know, writing on January 5th, I believe it was, uh, about his concern about what was going to happen in the next 48 hours um, and, uh, and concerns that uh, the White House counsel uh, might uh, resign en masse. Uh, and um, we want to know why was he uh, aware of the, the risks? Uh, what was he concerned about? Uh, what communications did he have with the White House chief of staff, with the president himself? Uh, there is a lot that he could shed light on. Uh, the question is, will he be willing to do so? And that's still very much an open question. And I know an ongoing question for a lot of us who are observing and, and monitoring the committee's work is the question about bipartisanship and you know is there any bipartisanship at all and and what information would be actionable out of the committee if there isn't strong bipartisanship you know one of the strange and ironic uh, silver linings of this terrible chapter of our history is the committee charged with investigating january 6th with uh, one of the most important investigations uh, ongoing uh, in congress uh, is a very bipartisan, indeed nonpartisan one. Uh, we have two conservative Republicans among our nine members. There's really no daylight uh, between any of us in terms of what we're seeking to do, which is to expose the facts, uh, to make recommendations uh, going forward and legislate to protect ourselves. Um, and so I think the committee is a good illustration that that work can still happen, does still happen. Now, you know, those two Republican members are at odds with much of their Republican conference because Kevin McCarthy has decided to double down, double down on Donald Trump and his big lie about the election. 
but we can't let that stop the work and it isn't stopping the work. And committee chairman Benny Thompson said recently he won't rule out referring criminal charges to the Justice Department, um, for example, as term, in terms of possible actions going forward. Can you speak more to, to those possibilities and, and subpoenas that you're considering as well? Um, you know, we certainly uh, have not refrained from making referrals. So we referred Mark Meadows uh, and Steve Bannon uh, for criminal contempt to the Justice Department. Uh, if, you know, we determine that the evidence rises to a certain level with respect to other potential cr crimes that, you know, we may very well make referrals to the Justice Department. But it's important to note that the Justice Department, uh, you know, with, with the one exception being a contempt of Congress, doesn't need a congressional referral. Uh, it can act very much on its own and should act on its own, it should be investigating all those uh, involved in wrongdoing uh, concerning the, the last election. Uh, and January 6th. And so they shouldn't be waiting for a referral from us. Uh, they, they ought to be conducting their own investigation. I hope that they are. Um, in terms of what future subpoenas uh, may go out, I, I can't comment on that. But, you know, I can tell you that um, there are a great many witnesses we have yet to interview that we uh, think are, are very key to our investigation. And you'll be hearing more about those in the future. And another big question for a lot of folks is where do we stand with prosecutions and holding the insurrectionists accountable? Uh, you know, it's a very good question. And, uh, you know, the Justice Department is, you know, certainly moving uh, to prosecute those that were on the ground on January 6th. The question is, what about others uh, who organized uh, the events that led to that insurrection? Uh, what about others, uh, including the former president who um, was on the phone with the Secretary of State in Georgia, uh, trying to corral the Secretary of State into finding 11,780 votes that don't exist um, and uh, giving him uh, uh, an election win when he lost that state. Um, I don't see signs that that's being investigated uh, by the Justice Department. That is that Georgia interference with the election. Um, and that concerns me a great deal. Um, if we went through four years where the Justice Department took the position that you can't uh, prosecute a sitting president, uh, and now we, we take a position that as a practical matter, you can't prosecute a former president, uh, that means that the president is above the law. And I think that that's uh, a dangerous idea that the founders never would have subscribed to. And I'm curious, are you disappointed that more Republicans aren't participating in the commemoration events for January 6th? It is disappointing. Um, you know, there were some very courageous Republican elections officials around the country uh, who were vital uh, to the success of our democracy, who withstood a lot of pressure and did the right thing. Um, and the fact that so many Republican members of the House and Senate lack that same courage, lack that same devotion to our democracy and their oath of office uh, is not only you know deeply disturbing, but, uh, but I think ultimately dangerous. Um, what we've learned over the last few years is that uh, we can have the most brilliantly written constitution in the world, but if the members of Congress who are sworn to uphold it uh, don't give meaning to their oath, uh, then none of it really works. We'll be talking more about polarization in this hour. And as we look ahead, what is keeping your faith in our institutions? Um, that's just something I'm personally grappling with right now. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people are grappling with that, uh, that are you know, deeply concerned about what they see going on in Congress and in state legislatures where uh, Republican officials are running with a big lie to enact a new series of Jim Crow laws and uh, strip independent elections officials of their duties and give them over to partisans. Um, there's there, there's reason for grave concern. Um, but what gives me optimism, and the reason why I fully believe we're going to get through this is there are millions and millions more Americans who love and cherish our democracy than those who are trying to tear it down right now. Um, and for every story of capitulation to the immorality uh, and authoritarian impulses of the last president, uh, there are lots of stories of courage of standing up to to that uh, you know rising tide of uh, authoritarianism within Trump's GOP. So there are a lot of her- heroes of this period, both Democrats and Republicans. And, uh, and I think those are the, the stories uh, and the individuals that are going to get us through this. And just in our last minute or so, what do you think can help bring the temperature down between the parties and, and this polarization? Uh, you know, I think we all need to do our part uh, at a very individual uh, level. We need to, you know, engage and speak to our neighbors, sometimes to our family members uh, and have those difficult conversations. I am a bit skeptical as long as Donald Trump is the leader of one of America's two great parties that we're going to be able to turn the temperature down. Uh, He continues to use his platform to uh, more bitterly divide us uh, and to perpetuate the same falsehood that led to violence on January 6th. Uh, So I'm quite circumspect about how much can be done until the GOP sheds itself of that destructive influence. But I think at a very individual and community level, um, there's a lot we can and really must do to try to heal the nation's divide and move us forward. Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat representing California's 28th district in Los Angeles County, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and member of the Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll have more of our conversation after the break commemorating the January 6th insurrection anniversary tomorrow. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. Ahead of tomorrow's anniversary, marking one year since the insurrection on the nation's capital, we're considering where the American experiment in democracy is headed. Joining me now is journalist Zach Beecham, whose new story for Vox this week is titled, How Does This End? A great question. <laughs> Welcome, Zach. Hi, thanks for having me on. 
So you took that question, how does this end, to a number of experts and got some sobering responses and scenarios. One near-term prediction got virtual consensus, you said, a period of heightened struggle. What picture is the research painting on that front? So it's complicated, right? When we think about heightened struggle, a lot of people default to oh, a civil war rerun. And I raise that that radical specter because some scholars are actually concerned about it. You know, there's a new book coming out called How Civil Wars Start uh, by Barbara Walter, a leading expert, actually based in California on civil wars, who uh, warns that the U.S. is exhibiting all four signs of a country that is likely to go into a civil war sometime soon. Now, I think, and, and I think the general view among scholars is that that's not likely in the United States sometime soon. For a variety of reasons, we are very, very different from countries that do tend to start get fall into what we conceive of as civil wars, including the United States itself in 1861. But the fact that those factors are present means mm. that lots of bad things can and will still happen. Most notably, uh, the, the, the issue that keep coming up again and again, were lower levels of political violence. Right? January 6th, what we saw last year, was a kind of political violence. It was an attack on the Capitol itself. Uh, even some things that we call mass shootings, for example, the uh, killing of worshipers at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018, that, that's a kind of politically motivated terrorism. Right, mm -hmm. The killer there was concerned about Jews allegedly importing non-white immigration to overwhelm the quote-unquote white Native American population. Right, And that kind of violence motivated by a particularly stark political conflict between competing visions of America, that sort of thing is, is likely to happen more in the coming years, especially as you start to see toleration or even celebration of what happened on January 6th in mainstream Republican ranks. And actually, before I move ahead with more questions for you, I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. Are you worried about the state of our democracy? How do we step back from political violence. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Uh, so, Zach Beecham, you break up the possible paths we're facing into three sections. You mentioned the conflict um, section. There's also catastrophe, including a reversal of civil rights, and finally change. And yet yeah, you mentioned speaking with UC San Diego professor Barbara Walter. Um, and was there anything else that you gleaned from her, other experts, in terms of these possibilities with conflict? Yes. I think one of the most important things I've learned, because a lot of Americans don't put our country in the context of the rest of the world's experience. We like to believe in a kind of American exceptionalism, not the kind that says that we're a shining city on a hill, but a kind that says that what happens here can't be meaningfully compared to things that happen in other places. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's true, right? There are lots of countries that have had violence around elections, and there's a good reason for that. Right? Elections are a site of political contestation. It determines who holds power, and that tends to bring out a sense of conflict, threat, and fear between partisans of different political parties. That's true everywhere. What democracy is supposed to do when it's working well and what it has done for the, in the U.S. for a very long time is to may, reassure the losing side that their loss happened through a, a free and fair political system, a legitimate political system that allows people to, to have confidence that they'll get a chance to compete again. And that's things are, are, are generally a, a, an okay way of resolving the disputes they have with their other citizens. But 
what January 6th showed us, and really more broadly, the continued deepening of certain lies about what actually happened in the 2020 election, is that American elections don't work this way anymore, or at least they don't clearly and necessarily work this way anymore. So you get large swaths of people, particularly in the Republican Party, who just simply don't believe that when they lose, it was the result of a legitimate, fair, and free process. And that makes violence surrounding American elections more and more likely in the future. So elections, and especially presidential elections, because they're so high stakes, given the powers the executive has, are are the real most likely flashpoint for continued Mm -hmm. violence in the coming years. And, And the root cause of that violence and that conflict, those root causes haven't gone away. Right, they're still here. Then maybe they're getting worse. Yes, and I want to get into some of those root causes, um, and we will in a bit in terms of racism and white supremacy, a lot of um, things at the core um, of our country's founding. But to kind of continue through this framework that I thought was really thoughtfully laid out in your piece, you next explore catastrophe and the dangers of our polarized politics. You found an example in Hungary. Can you speak about that? Sure. So I went to Hungary in 2018 uh, on a reporting trip to cover the state of democracy there. And and when I was on my way, I expected to find a democracy that was in trouble. And what I found when I got there on the ground was that it was a democracy that had, for all intents and purposes, died. The government, uh, currently controlled by Viktor Orban and the Fidesz party, has been so effective at changing the rules very subtly. Orban himself is a lawyer, and his parties in his inner circle, many of them are lawyers by training, very subtly changing the law, piece by piece, bit by bit, in a way that's invisible and too technocratic to a lot of citizens, to the point where it's it's nearly impossible for the opposition to win an actual election because the deck is so stacked against them. Uh, and sometimes these power grabs are, are, are done you know, just through these little tweaks of laws, and sometimes through things that, that really, if anyone were paying attention, would should and could could be quite alarming. For instance, over 90% by one estimate of the media in Hungary is owned by the government or its allies. And so they have elections. The, the, the counts in those elections aren't rigged, as far as we can tell. But due to these background conditions, like media ownership by the government, like gerrymandering in various different um, legislative districts, you end up having elections that are, comp- that are on such an unfair playing ground that the opposition has can't compete in any way that's meaningfully described as democratic. They have an election coming up this year, and it looks likely, not guaranteed, but very likely that even despite popular dissatisfaction with the Fidesz government, that they're likely to win again. Uh, so that's what political scientists call a competitive authoritarian system, right? In the sense that it still has elections, the stakes of those elections still matter, and the opposition can still wield parties, especially in uh, localities. So the you know in the big cities in Hungary, the opposition has a chance, um, or a real one, and often wields power. But what, what I'm worried about is that you know all these state-level changes that we're seeing from Republicans, uh, gerrymandering not as much as I had worried it would be this year, but things like Georgia's election law that allows uh, the state legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, to seize control over the vote-counting process. Right, Tools like that can be used to construct a kind of one-party state, which we've seen in the U.S. before. Uh, during Jim Crow and to be used to make it such that elections and the vote tallies aren't representative of op- the opposition support, the Democrat support in various different states. And you can get a position if, if trends continue in the way that especially current Republican state legislatures and Supreme Court jurisprudence is going, that we end up arriving at a competitive authoritarian United States 
guaranteeing Republican control of the minority of institutions, thanks in part to the Electoral College and the Senate, before we know it. I don't know when that would be. It's not a two-year thing. It's not a four-year thing. But in the medium term, that's a real and live possibility. And a lot of scholars that I spoke to who have studied places like Hungary are really worried about that happening here. Hmm. And you did mention Jim Crow, because you also write in your piece and add that Americans do not need to go abroad in search of examples of democratic breakdown. And one of your references is the Jim Crow regime that came out of an electoral crisis. Um, what are some of the other points that you looked that you look to in our own history? So I think that when it comes to authoritarianism, right, it, we we tend to have sort of slippery conceptions of the United States as a democratic country. Because it is true, and this is the sort of well-known story, right? We were a democracy for some people at the beginning of the country. And nowadays, we call that an authoritarian state, if only a small minority of the population can effectively participate in politics. Because, you know, minorities and uh, women aren't, aren't allowed to vote. No one would consider that a fully democratic state today. But by the standards of 1789, it was a relatively democratic state, but that means there's always been this element of authoritarianism or anti-democratic sentiment intertwined with the American vision of democracy. And so to me, what makes the Jim Crow example so vivid is it is it led to states that like it's political institutions in the states that bring out all of these latent anti-democratic sentiments and formalize them and institutionalize them. Right. It was things like poll taxes and literary mm-hmm. um, and sorry, literacy taxes. Right. These were all designed to ensure the Democrats, who are at the time the party of white supremacy, could never lose power. Right. And, and they targeted black voters, but they also pushed against white Republicans, right, who would on their own want to challenge white supremacy. There were campaigns of intimidation against an effort to disrupt their organizing as political factions. And so Jim Crow was maintained through a combination of law and, and violence and threat and functioned There's a great book on this by a political scientist named Robert Mickey called Paths Out of Dixie, functioned as, as authoritarian enclaves inside the United States. And again, this is not, it's not a black or white story, there have always been elements of anti-democratic sentiment entwined in the national American story. But subnational authoritarianism in the Jim Crow era, I, I use that example in the piece, even extending through the 1950s and 60s, is, is shows us just how deep these traditions go. We're talking with Zach Beecham, senior correspondent at Vox. His new piece about American democracy is How Does This End? And I'd like to add Kelly Carter Jackson to the conversation now. She's an associate professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College, author of Force and Freedom, and co-host of This Day in Esoteric Political History podcast. Welcome to Forum, Kelly. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for being here. And and speaking of not having to go abroad for examples of democratic breakdown, <laughs> as Zach was speaking about, I'm wondering if you could take us back to 1898, Wilmington, North Carolina, where events happened that you've said remind you a lot of January 6th. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about Wilmington a lot lately, and it is, I would say in the past year or so, come back into public uh, conscience because of the work that's being done by by historians and scholars to bring this to t- people's attention. But basically in 1898, Wilmington experiences an insurrection of its own. There is a 
um, small but meaningful Black population that for the first time has political influence in the town of Wilmington, North Carolina. And we're not talking about, you know, New York City or even Charlotte. This is a relatively small town in which Black people don't have power, but they have influence. And that influence was terrifying to a lot of the white people that lived in that area. And so for months, there had been this campaign um, that was not so secret to let people know that they were going to overthrow Black political um, leaders and elected officials and and, um, white people who wanted to maintain Black people's vote within the region. And so they stage a coup and they go straight into the mayor's office. They hold, hold him at gunpoint and basically force him to resign and then start uh, a massacre throughout the town in which they are mobbing and destroying black homes, killing black people. Um, Black people are essentially fleeing for their lives. They are, most of these people are property owners. They're people that own land. Um, So this means that there's a loss of wealth throughout the community. And not only are they able to successfully accomplish this insurrection and keep Black people from voting and keep Black people out of political office, but you don't see another Black elected official in Wilmington for another hundred years. It takes Hmm. another century to get a Black person in office in Wilmington, North Carolina, So when we think about, you know, what took place at the Capitol, it's terrifying because when we look at history as a precedent, we see that these things um, have long lasting effects. And in a piece for the Atlantic last year, Kelly Cutter Jackson, two days after the attack on the Capitol, you wrote, quote, this was not an uprising against a tyrannical government. It was an uprising against a multicultural government. Can you talk about why that distinction matters in your mind and what it says about the state of our union as we reflect on insurrection? Yeah, it's not a coincidence that the same day as the insurrection, you had the first black senator from the state of Georgia was elected. You had the first black Jewish senator also in the state of Georgia. And so, you know, when I think about the backlash, the racial violent backlash that happens in Reconstruction uh, during the end of the 19th century as a result of black elected officials and black suffrage and black people being able able to vote um, wholesale. This was terrifying to people. And so all throughout the end of the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, you have these racial, I hate to even call them riots, because really what they are, are they're mob attacks, they're massacres in which Black communities are destroyed, Black businesses and schools are destroyed, Black people are lynched. Um, Some people, uh, some scientists and political scientists have the numbers of of Black death around 47,000 within about a 20 to 30 year period. That's tens of thousands of people that are dying at the hands of mobs, all because of, again, not Black power, but Black political influence. Hmm. Well, let's go to a caller, Daryl in Lompoc. You're on. Yes, hi. Thank you uh, for taking my call. Um, As I was telling you, I'm a retired uh, military uh, Air Force tech sergeant. I did 21 years in the Air Force. My father did 20. I got a son and a daughter that's been in for 18 and 17 years. Anyway, military family and uh, we've got people in Guantanamo Bay that were picked up over in Afghanistan, Iraq, and um, have never set foot on American soil. And they were put in Guantanamo terrorists. And we have people that are walking around free who terrorized our capital. 
They are terrorists. They should have been put in Guantanamo Bay until their trials came, and they should be locked away until we find out exactly what happened, because if we don't treat them like terrorists, they are going to overthrow this government and this country. And what, are, what, what the, the, the subject matter as far as being black Americans, you know, I'm sorry, but white America needs to face itself. It needs to understand that there are some white people in America that want, white, that want America to be theirs, and everybody else here is, at, is here at their will. And so we need to treat them as though they are terrorists, and their leader, Donald Trump, needs to be treated as someone who is trying to overthrow America. Well, thank you for your comments, Daryl, and for your family's service. Uh, Kelly Carter-Jackson, do you, or, or Zach, um, do either of you have a response to him? Kelly, I'll go to you first. Yeah, you know, when I think about the attack, it's so funny how I think there was a quickness to try to diminish the people who were there as though they're fringe or radical or not representative of America. But you had ministers there. You had an Olympic swimmer there. You had some, you know, local elected officials there. These were moms of the PTA. I mean, these were Americans who thought that what they were doing was the most patriotic act they could imagine. And I think we have to be really careful about how we either trivialize or minimize or diminish um, the role that these people play, because if we are not careful, we will make something that really is horrible and awful, something that a generation or two from now becomes praiseworthy and a part of heritage. You know, I, I think a lot about how during the reconstruction and the lost cause, you know, Confederate soldiers are getting statues and they get memorials and they get monuments. And I would hate to see us fast forwarding two, three generations and the very people who were storing the Capitol have murals and statues and monuments. That's that's a scary thought to me when we diminish who was there and what they were doing. So we're actually coming up on a break. Um, so I'll get more with Zach Beecham when we come back. Zach Beecham's a senior correspondent at Vox, whose new piece about American democracy is How Does This End? We also just heard from Kelly Carter-Jackson, associate professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College. And we're reflecting on the events of January 6th and asking, where does our pol polarized country go from here? More after the break. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas, actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prale in Fermina Kim. We're reflecting on the events of January 6, 2021 and asking where our country goes from here. I'm joined by Zach Beecham, senior correspondent at Vox. His new piece about American democracy is How Does This End? And Kelly Carter Jackson, associate professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College. And you are listeners. We have one comment here from Robert who writes, I'm an older retired citizen. My concern is that my children and children and children and grandchildren will not be living in a democracy going forward. What actions can we take to help preserve the system we currently enjoy? There seems to be a lack of organized, concerted action. And Zach Beecham, Robert's question reminds me of the piece that you wrote in December, that we need a mass pro-democracy movement, but it doesn't exist. And your piece itself is titled, American Democracy is Tottering, It's Not Clear Americans Care. What do you think is holding back um, a movement or organized, concerted action? So I think there are a variety of different problems, right? And they, they intersect and uh, exacerbate each other. I think the first one has been, uh, uh, and it's unfortunate, but a distinct lack of leadership from the very top levels of the Democratic Party and liberal establishment, right? It, again, it's unfortunate to say this, but you don't have a lot of people on the Republican side, a handful of exceptions like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, again, accepted, who are really treating this as a concern. In fact, most of them have thrown in their lots with the Trumpists. And so if you're concerned about the subversion of American democracy and the uh, sort of going off the rails of the electoral system, you need a democratic majority in most places to do something about it. And you also need the leaders of the Democratic Party, since the cause has been identified with them on a partisan level, to rally their own people to get involved in that. And, and leaders don't just mean President Biden, I'm the majority leader, or sorry, the Speaker of the House. It, it means people, you know, prominent figures in organizing, activism, social life, et cetera. And you've got some of that, uh, but, but not nearly as much as you would get if you had especially top-level uh, messages coming down from the Biden administration, who so far, maybe this will change, hopefully it will in the next few months, but so far have treated this as a comparative side issue relative to their, their push to get something like Build Back Better through Congress. Um, you know, Part of it is that things feel hopeless, given that everything depends on uh, the median vote in the Senate, which is Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who don't seem to want to get rid of the filibuster, though now they're allegedly contemplating exceptions for it. And part of it is that there's, there's a wide sense among the Democratic rank and file, that this issue isn't that pressing. You know, I saw one poll that showed something like twice as many Republicans thought that American democracy was in danger as did Democrats. The irony of this is it's the perception among Republicans that, that American democracy is danger. That is itself the danger, right? Mm. Because they're concerned about phantom fraud, which leads them to do things like run for, um, you know, not previously nonpartisan election, local election officials, seize control on a partisan level uh, of, of vote counting processes, right? And you're, you're seeing this wave of Republican organizing around this fervent belief that Trump actually won the 2020 election. But Democrats, and this is sort of the last thing I want to say, Democrats are in power right now, like they won. So it's, it's much harder in general to get people active and excited about political causes when their side is in power because they feel like things are going reasonably well. And when you're really concerned about politics is when it looks like the other people are ruling over you. It's why we got the resistance movement in the early Trump years and the Tea Party in the early Obama years. 
And now we're getting the Biden equivalent of that, which is a groundswell of Republicans flooding uh, to to agitate for measures that undermine the quality of American democracy. And that's really distressing. And it's, it's a natural byproduct of the ideological evolution of the Republican Party and the dynamics of a two-party political system. It's, it's what you would expect. But at the same time, what you would expect takes on uniquely high stakes, given that democracy is its, itself is in question. And to, to piggyback on some of these thoughts, Aaron writes, when and how did the emotional stakes of elections get so high that losing becomes akin to death? Zach Beecham, do you have thoughts on Aaron's question? I, I do. It's a, it's a great question and one that encompasses, God, 50 plus years of American political history. Right. At least. Right. Right. But the, I mean, the story that really here is the story of partisan polarization in the U.S. of the and not just like a normal polarization where you get parties that disagree with each other's very clearly on issues. Uh, Something that uh, the political scientists uh, Jennifer McCoy calls pernicious polarization, which means the division of society into competing social camps based primarily on political and partisan identification. And in the U.S., this happened when our social identities became lined up with our political identities. So you have the Republican Party is the party that you're in if you're white and a Christian uh, and older, you know, 65 plus from a rural area. When all of these things become uh, homogenous in one party, then you end up getting a sense that any attack on the Republican Party is an attack on those overlapping identities, right? It's that when Republicans lose, white Christian America's survival is at stake, mm-hmm. right? And and that construction, the, the reason our identities are aligned like that is in large part the post-civil rights, post-1960s activist movement of the Democratic Party consolidating all of the country's uh, minority groups functionally into one large umbrella group. You know, we have all the, um, you have basically every religious minority in the United States is uh, a Democratic constituency. Every racial minority is a majority Democratic constituency, right? You know, you feminists are in the Democratic poll. Atheists are, are overwhelmingly Democratic. College educated people tend to be increasingly Democratic, right? And so you have a democratic party that has a variety of different social groups, but those social groups themselves, their stakes and their their place in America is linked with the fate of the democratic party. And then you have mm-hmm. one really homogenous block on the Republican side and their fate, and they perceive it as being linked with that of the Republican party. So the contest between these two parties isn't just over who gets to set tax policy for the next four years. But given the way America is arranged, it's a contest between each group having feeling like their vision and their place in America is safe and secure. And that's a recipe for, for really truly high stakes, catastrophic elections. Kelly Carter Jackson, when it comes to some of the root issues we're dealing with here, I think about Toni Morrison's old interview with Charlie Rose, where she comments on the neurosis of racism in this country. She said, quote, The people who do this thing, who practice racism, are bereft. There is something distorted about the psyche. It is a huge waste and corruption and distortion. It's profound neuroses that nobody examines for what it is. And she goes on to say it's nearly as, if not equally debilitating to white people as it is to black people, people of color. And it does feel like that lack of examination, the lack of really facing history in ourselves, as we've been kind of mentioning along this conversation, is a critical part of this. 
Uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, along with Senator Cory Booker, has proposed a Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission, but it has yet to gain any real traction. What are your thoughts on Toni Morrison's assertion there and, and on the need for racial healing? Oh, man. First of all, that, that Toni Morrison interview is probably one of my favorite interviews. She says, you know, she goes on to say, if you can only be tall by standing on somebody else's neck, you know, that that's not power. Um, I think we have continually, con consistently failed to have honest conversations about white supremacy, about the intentions of white supremacy, the impact of white supremacy, and how it robs not just black people of their humanity, but white people as well. And that failure to have these honest conversations has put us on this, this treadmill where it feels like even when we increase our speed, we're not really going anywhere. And I think that, you know, it's, to me, it requires more than just a truth and reconciliation council. I know they did this in South Africa with apartheid and it was, you know, debatable about its effects, but it can't just be a sort of kumbaya, let's talk about how we feel moment. I think that there are real grievances that have to be addressed and real reparations that have to be addressed. And America has been unwilling um, to address reparations, but even you know, at a surface level, unwilling to address like the apology to the grievances. And so that is why we are in the situation that we are in. Well, Thor writes, 10 years ago, I thought if the South wanted to secede again, we should let them. Now it may be time to consider separating into two countries. I don't see a way that 60 million Trump cultists will live peace peacefully among us. Curious how you see a peaceful resolution to the current situation. Kelly Carter Jackson, I want to get your take and kind of fold in some of the research that I know you've done on abolitionist movements and, you know, the wrong thinking that white abolitionists had that they could morally persuade slaveholders, you know, that slavery was wrong. And so if we are beyond moral persuasion that multicultural, multiracial democracy is good and is valuable to those who feel threatened by it, mm -hmm. what then, you know, where, where do you see us going? Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that, I'm so disturbed by because one of the abolitionist claims was that slavery starts in violence. Slavery is sustained by violence. So they surmised that slavery would only end through violence. And the violence that they advocated was not a tit for tat. It was not vengeance. It was violence used to arrest violence or to stop the violence of slavery and white supremacy. It was not meant to like eradicate um slaveholders or, or all white people together, but it was meant to stop the oppression and the, the evil institution of slavery. Um, but the lines are not nearly as clean cut as they were then, as they as they right. are not now. So, um, you know, you had obviously a slaveholding South and a, and a free labor North, but you also had border states like Kentucky and Maryland and Delaware that have slaves, but they don't secede with the South. And now when we look at our divisions today, it's not just a North-South divide, but it's an urban and rural divide. It's a suburban and urban um, divide. They're all different ways in which we have categorized ourselves regionally and politically, that there are no sort of regions or spaces where you can kind of opt out, uh, opt out in, in the way that we think about it, of it in terms of the Civil War. It's a lot more complex. Yeah. 
to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're reflecting on the events of January 6, 2021, and asking where our polarized country goes from here with Zach Beecham, senior correspondent at Vox. His new piece about American democracy is How Does This End? And Kelly Carter Jackson, associate professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College. You're listening to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. And Zach Beecham, you conclude your piece with thoughts on the possibility of change. And you include a number of questions as part of that section too, including, is there a point where upheaval and an instability, should they come, get to be too unbearable for enough of our political elites to act? I'm gonna cheat here and turn that question back on you just to see if you have any thoughts on that question for yourself yet, and or how that question weighs on your mind. Uh, I mean, it's something I think about all the time, right? And a lot of it, especially now, right? We're a year out from January 6th. And I really thought for, for a few minutes, at least, maybe this is going to be it, right? Maybe we're going to see a mob of violent people attacking police officers and storming the Capitol, right? You know, all of the symbols that America, and in particular, white America, hold dear as, as you know, national symbology goes, and that might maybe shock people out of the stupor of the forces that were being unleashed during the Trump years and w with the long-term evolution of the Republican Party. And that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. It didn't. We, we know it didn't now. Uh, a, a year on, Trump is still the leader of the Republican Party. Uh, it's clear that, I mean, there, there's crazy data floating around today that shows January 6th saw a sharp decline in Republican favorability for Mitch McConnell and Mike Pence because they refused to overturn the election. Right? Like, there's no other explanation other than the events of January 6th, given the timing of the data. Uh, and like, what do you do then? Like, what, what will it take? Right? So much in the same way that I thought, or at least some people thought, I'm not sure I did, but the COVID-19 would be something that could be a unifying factor mm -hmm. politically, right? That would bring us together in the face of an external threat. And then it didn't, right? It, it became just more grist for the partisan mill. And so what, what makes me really scary, like I'm in a really dark mood and I'm thinking, oh, what's the... Uh, you know, what What really is it going to take? Like something worse than January 6th. And January 6th was awful, right? This is not to minimize the significance of that day. Again, it was an attack on a free and fair election. It was the first time we have had a peaceful transition to power since the Civil War. Right? This is really, a truly significant day in American history. And even that wasn't enough. So what happens? What kind of catastrophe? What level of violence? What amount of social upheaval? What amount of unlawful anti-democratic behavior does it take to either cause the Republican elite to change their mind about the alliance they forged with the anti-democratic forces, or for enough Americans to say, we hate the direction the country is in, we're going to demand change? And it could be that something really bad has to happen, an outright stolen election, for example. Yes, even, even worse, inconceivable as compared to, to what's happened previously. And that I, I don't know. I just I, I worry about that all the time, and I don't have a more hopeful theory of the case that, about how we're going to pull out of our tailspin. Yeah, and especially as we've mentioned before, that the entrenchment of identity being so everything being so personal with that that it's hard to then be able to open up and kind of see our greater kind of community humanity there. Let's go to another caller, John in San Francisco. You're on. Yeah, well, a yeah, great uh, program. Thank you very much. I'm a uh, ex-Marine combat veteran, commanded both whites and blacks in my unit. Um, I'm in touch with both of them. 
both, both whites and blacks, and uh, both sides see the inevitable conflict coming, uh, you know, from, from each perspective. And, and I, I, I have never been so worried for my country as I am right now. Um, the, the image of that uh, Marine Corps captain marching across the, the, the Capitol Rotunda with a Confederate flag will be etched in my memory forever. Um, that's, you know, where I think we're headed. I think we're headed for a civil war. I don't see how it can be stopped. Uh, unless, like the gentleman said, uh, unless the, the thought process in, in the uh, is, is changed drastically for the American public, I don't see that happening. I thought it would happen after the January 6th uh, assault, you know, that people would wake up, but they haven't. Well, thank you for your comment, John, and also for your service. Yeah, thank you for this program. And Yes, thank you. And I'll read another comment here. Robert writes, where do we go from here? We, started, we start by acknowledging that the Republican Party itself has become the greatest threat to our democracy that our country has ever seen. Let's dispense with talk of extremists, extremists on both sides. No one side... No, one side believes in democracy as a form of government, and the Republican Party does not. And then Ron writes, lack of a common source of truth is the deepest cause of these problems. Kelly Carter Jackson, um, we're in our kind of last 30 to 45 seconds. That last comment about lacking the common source of truth as a deeper cause of mm-hmm. this. What are your thoughts on that? It's yeah, it's the consensus for me or the lack thereof that we don't have a consensus around youth. We don't have consensus around the facts or what happened. And that to me is what's most terrifying. Um, I think that war, the idea of a civil war is is certainly frightening. Um, but but we even when I think about the end of the civil war, so much of the lost cause was about not having consistency about who won the war and the reasons for the war and the cause for the war, which was slavery. But we still are in debates about that 150 years later. So until we get consensus on what is truth, I think we will constantly be fighting these battles long after the violence of these wars have ended. Well, thank you both for your comments. Zach Beecham, senior correspondent at Vox, his new piece about American democracy is How Does This End? And Kelly Carter Jackson, associate professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you very much. And we'll be continuing our reflections tomorrow. Thanks so much for joining us. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.